Thank you so much, worship team. I want to welcome you guys all to church today. We're so happy to see all of you guys. Uh, it's such a blessing to be here with all of you guys. I want to welcome our online audience as well, whether you're watching from Portland or Los Angeles, Alaska, Arizona, wherever you are watching. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. I hope that uh, our time together will be a blessing to you. I hope it will give you strength. I hope it will help you to uh, see God in new ways. Uh, we began a series a couple weeks ago, and the series is called open-handed, and the subtitle is uh, Thinking, Speaking, and Acting Generously. So the focus and the, the topic for the past few weeks have been on generosity, and uh, we, we selected this topic because we felt like this was a message that really needed to get out there just because of the way the world is right now, that the world could use more generosity, and, and what, I, what I mean by that is the world could use more generous people. Like, we don't need generosity as a concept. We need people who will think, act, and speak generously. And so the past few weeks, we've been focusing on the thinking generously part. And so we did this by teaching everyone here and our online audience as well three statements that if you kind of keep in your minds and repeat to yourselves, especially when you are tasked or challenged with being generous or not, if you have these three statements in mind, it'll help you to think generously. And these are the three statements. The first one is, none of this is mine. Like all the stuff you have, you can say, none of this is mine. The second is, I am a receiver of insane generosity, that you understand that you've been given things. And finally, Pastor Jonathan shared with us last week this idea of, I have been blessed in order to bless. I have been blessed in order to bless. So these three statements, I think if you kind of keep them in your head and as you uh, 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 apply them to your life and as when, when there's a moment to be generous and you're like, I don't know, it's, it's the end of the month and like my bank account is not quite where I would like it to be, if you would think, wait a minute, none of this is mine, I am a receiver of insane generosity and I've been blessed in order to bless other people, it will begin to help you to think generously. Now, now, learning to think a new way takes time, guys. So if this past week or these past three weeks you're like, man, pastor's been talking about generosity, but I am not a more generous person. Like, I'm still struggling to tip. I'm still struggling to, like, give to people. It's okay. It's time. It takes time to think a new way and to learn to think generously. Now, we're shifting gears today, and we're going to be talking about the second part of speaking generously. And, and what, I, what I mean by speaking generously, we're really talking about being generous within our relationships because that's who we, that's where we speak. We speak to people. And so oftentimes, especially in our world today right now, that's where we get into trouble. So what if we, we learn to think and speak generously? Next week is going to be the last message of the series. And um, as I was thinking about it, I think next week is going to be the most difficult sermon of the entire series. It's going to be the most challenging message of the series, especially for some of you. For some of you, it's like not actually going to be too challenging. You're going to be like, okay, that's cool. I'm glad you reminded me of that. But for some of you, next week is going to be very, very difficult for you to hear. But for some of you, if, if the Holy Spirit takes hold of you with the message next week, it could change a lot of things for you. Especially if you have questions and doubts about God, next week is going to be hard, 
but it could really open the way to a whole new understanding and a whole new relationship with your Heavenly Father. So if that's where you are, I really want to invite you back. Uh, and I need you all to pray for me as I prepare because next week's tough. Next week's tough. So, um, but we're going to get into today's message. And today is the most practical of the entire series. Like the stuff we're talking about today, you can do it today. Like you can start today doing the things that I, that I feel like God is asking us to do. So let's pray and let's get into today's talk. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, so much for each person here in this room. Thank you for all those watching. Holy Spirit, come and do your thing. Father, we need to hear you. Uh, we pray that you would be glorified through this message and that we would be challenged, Father, and that things would change in our relationships because of what you do today. You name me pray. Amen. I want to begin today's message with a question. And the question is this. What do you expect from each other? What do you expect from each other? And I'm talking about like people in this room. Okay? When you look around, um, for those of you who are who regularly come to this church, when you think about the church, and if you don't come here usually, think about your church or your community or wherever, what do you expect from the people in your community? What do you expect from the people in this church if you're a part of this church? Or, or if, if you don't go to church, your community, whatever that is, maybe it's family, uh, maybe it's a group of friends, like what do you expect from them? The challenge with this question, what do you expect, is that it's a question that often goes unasked. Like, I, I haven't asked you that before. I haven't sat down with you and like, hey, what do you expect of me as the pastor of the church? I probably should have. But this question often goes unasked. What do you expect from each other? And because it goes unasked, guess what? It gets unanswered. But the bigger problem is that you have an answer, but nobody knows what it is. You have an expectation of the people in your community. You want them to act, be a certain way towards you, but you may not have ever thought about the answer, but you have an answer, let's be honest. And when someone does something or says something to you that is out of line with what your expectations are, whether you've spoken it out or not, you get hurt or you get angry or you have issues or you have conflict and tension. Right? Isn't this like, this is how things go. You have expectations of, a peop of people. Nobody knows what those expectations are. And when people are unintentionally meeting those expectations, that's fine. Everything's great. But when someone says something or steps on your toes or steps out of line according to you, that's when we got problems. So I think it's an important question that we ask ourselves, what do we expect from each other? I'm assuming, and maybe I may be wrong, but when you came to a church, you expected something like kindness. That's fair. Warmth, love, maybe acceptance. Maybe you, you expected people to, to greet you and, and, and be kind to you, and you, you expected these things. Or maybe you had no expectations of all. Or maybe you're a person where you had a really bad experience with church, and you came to church, and you expected like people to be cold and judgy and condemning. I don't know. One question I want to ask you guys is, is, is one of the things that you expect from the people in this room, is it agreement? Do you expect the people in your community, whether it's family or friends or church, do you expect them to agree with you? I think it's like, mm, I don't know. 
Because in your mind, here's, here's the thing. I, I'm going to try to get into your mind right now. Because I think the thing is, you know you can't reasonably expect everyone to agree with you, but guess what? You want everyone to agree with you. You know you can't actually expect that, but you really want everyone to agree with you. They want, you want people to accept your opinion and your understanding and your direction and your decisions. Even though you know that's not really possible, you want that. So I'm going to ask as I was thinking about this whole like, idea of, of expectations and, and that kind of thing, this is the, the thought that God put on my mind, and like this is crazy to me, right? When we think about what we expect from each other, here is the tension, okay? This is the tension that we all live with. What we expect from each other, we often excuse for ourselves. I'm going to let that, like, hang for a moment because, like, that's a bomb, guys. Like, we're starting this sermon crazy. That is a bomb. All right, let me say that. What we expect from each other, we often excuse for ourselves. Like, when I you would come to this place, I expect people to love me and care about me and support me and be there for me. But when someone else in my life was going through something, I didn't do it well. I was really busy. I don't really have time. You don't know my, my kids were sick or I was sick. You know, the, the things that we expect from each other and we want people to do for us, so many times we make excuses when we don't live up in those same ways. And so we live in that tension. We live in that tension, that relational tension where we begin to, we can fail other people, but it's okay. But when other people fail us, it's not okay. They don't care. What kind of community is that? They don't really love. This whole thing about loving community is bogus. And so we feel this tension throughout life in the community that we have, especially when it comes to disagreements. Because when some, we, we disagree with someone, what do we want? We want them to say, I understand that's your perspective. I value you and I respect you. But when someone disagrees with us, do we offer that same kind of mercy that we expect? In our world today, we live in a very divisive time. And it's a hard time to live in community where there are so many opinions and thoughts and perspectives. It's hard to figure out how do we do life together even though we're different. How do we have diversity but also have unity and harmony at the same time. The good news is this, is that when the church began, like the church that we know it, when it began 2,000 years ago in the first century, do you know what the church leaders expected? So the church leaders, if you don't know who they are, like Paul, James, Peter, the disciples, do you know what they expected when they figured out this thing called the church? They hoped for love, kindness, acceptance, warmth, and love, but what they expected was fighting, conflict, Tension, rumors, gossip, all that stuff. They expected that. They anticipated that the community that would be called the church would be full of fighting and division. Because they knew that this whole church thing was going to be a big problem. Let me explain. They knew that the church thing was going to be a big problem because the church was going to be based on something that was completely brand new. And the, the ask of the church is, will you be in a community of people where you have no shared interests, you have no shared culture, you have no shared history, you have no shared language, you have no shared food, 
You're going to be in a community with all these people who are completely different from you and were raised completely different from you, but you got to love each other. And the one thing that would bind everyone, not all those things which are the normal things that help us feel close to people like food and friends and love and passions and interests, all that stuff out the window, the one thing that's supposed to bind this completely diverse group of people is the belief that there was a man named Jesus who came to this earth and he was God's son and he died for all of our sins and he was resurrected from the dead. That was the one thing that was supposed to bond everyone together. So the early church leaders are like, okay, that's powerful stuff, but let's be honest. People are going to fight because we got these super, super Jewish people, and then we got these super, super Greek people, and, like, they're not going to get along. And there's, like, widows, and then there's rich people, and there's orphans, and there's poor people. Like, this is going to be a problem. So if you read the New Testament, there are verses all over the place. In fact, there are 100 verses that are called what we call the one another verses. 100 verses in the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible, basically telling everybody, this is how you are supposed to treat each other. Why? Because they knew there was going to be problems. And so among these 100 verses, one-third of these verses is simply love one another. Love one another. The other two-thirds are basically breaking down specifically how are you supposed to love one another. Right, so, so this idea of how we're supposed to treat each other, it's a huge theme in the New Testament. And so the apostles, they expected all these problems, and all the problems happened. They were right. There was division. There was like theological, biblical division. Like, I believe this about the Bible, and I believe this about God and Jesus. And then some people were like, nah, man, you crazy. That's not what it's like. It's like this. And then one group of people said, no, I think on this day, on these things, we should do this. And another group said, no, that's insane. That's terrible. That's a terrible, terrible idea. We can't do that. There was all of this stuff, and then those people would talk bad about those people, and then those people would leave these people out, and these people wouldn't get invited to their birthday parties, and they wouldn't be invited to dinner, and they, wouldn't, they, were, they were like divided like crazy. But here's the amazing thing. The church survived. And we're here today because of that. Right, like in that kind of a situation, along with the fact that the government was trying to kill all of you guys, the church survived. So my question is, how did it survive? How could it survive that kind of culture? How could it survive that kind of experience? Man, that's insane. And so my thought as I was thinking about this series being relationally generous, I thought maybe if we look at the early church and how they did it, maybe we can learn something from them. And here's what I learned. I learned that I've been asking the wrong question. For the last 18, 19 months, I've been asking the wrong question. And maybe you have also. Because I think the question, whether unspoken or spoken out loud, the question that I've been having is, how do I stop people from fighting? Or how do I stop people from posting stuff? How do I stop people from saying these things? How do I prevent people from fighting and breaking up? How do I stop that? That's been my question. What can we do? And most of the times in churches, the answer is, let's just not talk about it. If everyone just shuts up, everyone just stays silent, we can get through this. I don't need to know that about you, and we can be friends. But if once you say it out loud, uh, then it starts getting kind of rough. Or we try to like maneuver around it. I know, I'm like that. I don't like conflict. I don't like tension. I like to avoid 
those kinds of things. So I realized, man, I'm, I'm asking the wrong question because if you look at all the verses, those one another verses in the Bible, there are a lot of them about setting up the, the kind of like spirit and mindset to prevent fights and division and all that stuff. But there are just as many one another verses that are about how to deal with conflict when it happens. So the question I've been asking for the last 18, 19, 20 months is, how do I stop people? How do I prevent people? But the question God has put on my heart today, he's saying, you're asking the wrong question. The, the, the question is not, how do you prevent people from doing this? The question that he wants us to ask is, how do we one another through it? How do we one another, one another through this kind of time? Because there's a sobering truth that God brought to my mind. That there is probably no end to it. And like, that sucks. But when you think about our world today, do you see a time where there's no longer going to be issues that are going to divide people? Right, like, there, it's anything right now. Like, even pineapples on pizzas divide people. You know what I mean? I don't know where you guys stand on that side, that, that issue, but we don't have to go there, right? We don't have to go there. But as I look at the landscape of the world, man, I don't think there's ever going to be a time now where, you know what, your opinions, it's okay. Like, you can just, like, it's always going to be divisive, I think, divisive from here on out. So we got to learn as a church, how do we one another through it? Because that's the situation we're in. And we can wish it wasn't that way, but it is that way. People are different. People have differing opinions and values and ideas, and there's ways to get it out, and there's lots of emotions involved with all that stuff. So we got to learn how to one another through it, because maybe we just can't really stop it. We live in such a divisive time. But who do you think is supposed to show this world how to get along? Who, whose responsibility is that? Who is equipped to show the world how to have harmony and unity through diversity of opinion? Maybe, maybe it's the people who said, I believe that God is a God of love. Maybe it's the people who said, I believe in, in, in Jesus who loved everyone and died for everyone. Maybe it's the people whose founder and leader and model, i.e. Jesus, was the one who laid down his life for people completely different than him, who said to each other, love one another as I have loved you, and that way people will know that you're my followers. Maybe it's those people that are actually supposed to show the world and the companies and the stores and the communities, this is how you get along. Maybe it's the, the people whose founders of their organization and their community taught over and over and over and over again, a hundred times, this is how you're supposed to treat each other even though you're so different. Maybe it's those people that are supposed to show the world how to get along. And so I want to show you a couple of those verses, like a couple of those verses that, some of those one another verses, right? So we'll just go through these real quickly. One of, and these are some of my, my highlights, my favorites. Colossians 3.13. Remember, this is how we're supposed to treat each other. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's an awesome one another verse. 
Bear with one another, forgive one another. If anyone has a grievance, a complaint, an issue, you don't like that guy, you don't like that girl, you know what you're supposed to do? Complain to the pastor, complain to the elders. That's not what it says. It says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Next verse, Ephesians chapter 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another. That's that word again, bearing with one another in love. Romans 12. And Romans is actually a a letter Paul wrote to a church he's never even been to. He just assumes that they're going to have problems. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And Peter, another leader of the church, one of the disciples, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Man, if we did that, it would be awesome, right? Like, think about how many relationships would have been saved over the last year and a half if people just did that. Imagine how many friendships would still exist if people just did that. It's hard, though, right? Because there's like, like I said, there's 100 verses. A third of them are just love one another, so you guys all know those. But there's like 66, two-thirds that are all kinds of different ways to love one another. So it's hard to remember all those things. So what I want to do is I want to break it down and basically give you one thing. One thing that if you do this, you kind of, it kind of encompasses all of the one another verses. All right? So, so like this is kind of huge. If you just do this one thing, I feel like you're going to pretty much capture most of the one another verses. And like we're talking about, what it really comes down to is this idea of relational generosity. And I know that doesn't blow anyone's mind because you're like, what does that even mean? Like, I know what generosity is with my finances. I even know what generosity is with my time. But what is generosity in my relationships? What is that? We're going to unpack that today. And I think it's a really powerful thing, a powerful way to live, way to think, and think to offer to other people that I think if we had done so or if the world had done so more recently, we'd be in a different situation. So when we think about generosity, probably the first thing you think about is you give something. So within relational generosity, you do have to give something away. So what do we give people when we're trying to be generous in our relationships? And and like, I want you to apply this not just to church and this community here, but like with your spouse or with your children, okay? And that's when it gets really real, but think about this. Also, it gets really dicey and it gets really hard to apply in those situations, but it'd be good for you to think of those. So what do we give to people when we try to be generous in our relationships? And I think probably most of you, where your head is going is we give people, being generally generous in my relationships means I give people this, the benefit of the doubt. The benefit of the doubt. And I feel like most of you guys know this phrase. But the benefit of the doubt is simply like, I don't know the situation, so I'm not going to get mad. I don't know the situation. I don't know what's going on. So I'm not going to judge them or get angry at them. I'm just going to chill out and relax. Perfect example. You're driving on the freeway. Someone, they cut you off. And your initial reaction, actually don't tell us what your initial reaction is going to be. But then you have a moment because Jesus is in your heart, right? And you're in a spiritual place while you're driving and you're listening to praise music. And you're praying. And someone cuts you off and you're like, oh. And you stop for a second and you say, wait, 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 wait. I don't know that guy. I don't know that lady. I don't know what situation they're in. 
like maybe they're super late for a job interview and they're like, if they, if they're, if they don't make it in time, they're going to get, they're going to lose a job. And you're like, all right, if I was in that situation, I'd probably be speeding too. Maybe, maybe they have to go pick up their kids. And yesterday when they got there late, the kids were crying and they're like, mom, you left me. And they're like, they got to get there on time. So they sped. Maybe that's why, because I'd probably do that. Maybe they're like, let's get real. Maybe they have to go to the bathroom really, really bad because let's, let's, let's be honest, we've all done that, right? You're like, you got to get there or it's disaster. I feel you. I, I know what that situation is like. Okay, I'm going to give you a pass. All right, that's benefit, benefit of the doubt. I don't know their situation, so I'm not going to get upset. I'm not going to get mad. And that's actually a really great way to live, right? Like that's a really awesome thing to give people. If you give each other benefit, that's fantastic. But here's the thing. That's not one another. That's not one another. Because benefit of the doubt, what it is, is you're saying this. I'm not going to assume bad intentions until proven otherwise. I will not assume bad intentions until proven otherwise. Again, that's good. But it is not one another. That is not what God has called us to do towards each other in this community. It's not just I will not assume bad intentions until proven otherwise. What I believe relational generosity is, the way it's different, relational generosity does not say I'm not going to assume bad intentions. Relational generosity is I will assume the best intentions until proven otherwise. I will assume the best intentions about the people in this room until proven otherwise. There is a huge difference isn't there? Between I will not assume bad intentions and I will assume the best intentions. The, pre- the reason the person did that or said that, you think of the best reason that they could have done that for. The best intentions. It'll change the way you react to what people say to you. It'll change the way you respond to the things that people say and do to you. It's a completely different way to approach relationships when they say, I will assume the best intentions. And isn't this what you want for people to give to you? You want people at work, you want your employees, you want your coworkers, you want your boss to do that for you, don't you? You want people to look at you and assume that you had the best intentions. When you look at your, your children, you want your children to assume that you had the best intentions. When they took away your phone, when I sent you here, when I punished you, when I said you couldn't do that anymore, I want my kids to understand that I had the best intentions. You want that. And you want people to give you that, but we have to then be people who give that to others. It's a completely different situation. Relational generosity, I will assume the best intentions until proven otherwise. Just think about like the last week or the last month and the arguments that you guys got in. I don't know who you fought with, but think about the people you fought with. Or think about the negative feelings that you had towards people. Maybe you didn't fight, but someone said something and you like, something just like burned inside of you. Think about those moments. What if in those moments you had the best, you believed the best intentions about that person? How would things have been different? 
I'm going to give you guys an even easier way to understand this. We say in generosity, we give something to people. Within this framework of relational generosity, because I know no one's going to walk around being like, I will assume the best intentions until proven otherwise. I will assume. No one's going to do that, right? Here's what it is. This is what you give to people when you are relationally generous. You give them trust. You give them trust. In the world, in the workplace, in the schools, the way it is, is trust is what? Earned. You have to earn people's trust. People have to earn your trust. You have to be competent. You have to be a person of good character. Then I will trust you. Within the community of faith, within the loving community that we're trying to build here, in one anothering one another, relational generosity, it doesn't work that like that. The way it works is trust is given and distrust is earned. In this community, that's what it means. Trust is given, distrust is earned. What if we began to live like that? What if we were able to relate to one another like that? Giving people not the benefit of the doubt, but assuming the best about that person. I trust you. I will give you my trust. I will give it freely to you. But distrust is earned. Now I want to close just with just one important example of this in Scripture, where we see this in Scripture. And I want to start from one of those verses that Paul wrote to the Romans about relationships. This is what he said, Romans chapter 15, verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. May the God who gives you endurance and encouragement give you the same mind and attitude same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had. In other words, I want you to see each other the way Jesus sees you. Hey, Roman church, I don't even know you guys, but I know you got problems. How about you start looking at each other the way Jesus looks at you? So here's my question as we close. When Jesus sees you, what do you think he sees? When Jesus sees you, what do you think he sees? Do you think he sees the mistakes and the screw-ups, the bad intentions and the sin? When Jesus sees you, what do you think he sees? And I think some of us grew up in a faith where all we think is that Jesus sees the warts and Jesus sees the problems and Jesus is, sees the mistakes and Jesus sees all my sin. That's what he sees when he sees me. But the Bible paints a different picture. What do you think Jesus sees when he sees you? I'm going to share kind of a large portion of scripture, but this is so beautiful, okay? This is from Psalm 103, and it's written by David. David, the guy who is believed to have the closest relationship with God than anyone else in the Bible. And this is what he says in, in Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion? Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? The Lord 
is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, he will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as, and this is the best part, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. When Jesus sees you, what do you think he sees? He doesn't see all the the mess-ups and all, the, all the, the, the warts and all the mistakes and all the wrong things you said and the anger. It's not what he sees. He sees the value within you. He sees himself, the image of God he placed in every single one of us. He sees not who you've been and who you are. He sees who you can be in him. I mean, think about Paul, the guy, we, we looked at a lot of his writings today. I mean, if anyone looked at who he was when he was converted, that was a big mistake. But God did not see who, his, who he was in the past or who he even was in the present. He saw who he could be with him. And he reached out and he grabbed him and he brought him into the family. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, another verse, and this is our last verse today. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were still sinning, mid-sin, he died for us. Knowing our intentions were bad. Knowing our intentions were selfish. Knowing our intentions were evil, he died for us. He saw the person you are in the deepest part of who you are. He saw the value. He saw the worth. And he looked at you when he sees you. He sees that is someone that I am willing to die for. We are people he is willing to die for. You. In spite of everything you've done, he has said you are worth my life. And the people that we're arguing with and the people we're fighting with, whoever they may be, whether they're a person in our lives, in our families, in our friend circle, someone online, Jesus said about that person too, they are worth me dying for them. So he says, Paul says, I want you to see each other the way Jesus sees you. So love one another. Have harmony. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. We, we have a model. The world doesn't. Your organization, your company, your place you work for, your school, doesn't. They don't know how to do this. But we've been shown in the person of Jesus Christ how we can do this. So I feel like it's partly our responsibility to learn to be relationally generous with one another. To, to give people not the benefit of the doubt, but assume the best about the people around us. To give trust. To give trust first. Because that's how Jesus sees you. And he's asked you to see other people in this community and other people around you to see them that way. So as we close, 
I want to challenge you guys today, this week, to start assuming the best. Don't go cynical. I know for some of you, that's like your natural state, and I get it. But let's start going. Let's start one-anothering one another, looking at people with those kinds of eyes. And like, see, imagine what could happen in our church and in our families. If we're able to do that, man, it would be amazing. So I hope we can see that. I hope we can see that in our relationships today and this week. And that through it, reconciliation and healing might happen. And that we can say that we are one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm challenged today by this message, Lord. Because it's really easy, it's really easy to assume the, bad, the worst about people. We do it all the time, God. We're all guilty of that. But for real, God, how am I going to do that when you don't even do that to me? How am I going to see people that way when you don't see me that way? Thank you, God, for what you did on the cross. As far as the east is from the west, you've separated our sins from us. Lord, give us the grace and mercy to offer that to other people as well. Thank you for your love. Thank you for our community. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity for healing reconciliation. May the world begin to learn about your love, about reconciliation because of the way we begin to treat one another. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has a strained relationship with somebody, for anyone who has a relationship where they need reconciliation. God, I pray that you would give them the courage to step forward, to do what needs to be done, to bring healing and wholeness to their lives and their relationships. Thank you, Father. In your name we pray.